Welcome back to the Voting While Black podcast. We're talking with the candidates running for president in 2020, getting real about what they think about race and exactly how they would help the movement for racial justice. I'm Rashad Robinson from Voting While Black, the nation's largest Black-led, volunteer-driven voter mobilization program, a project of Color of Change PAC. My guest today is Secretary Julian Castro. Having served as the mayor of San Antonio, Texas for five years, he was appointed Secretary of Housing and Urban Development by President Obama in 2014. In that role, he expanded housing rights to minority groups and opened an investigation on Facebook for allowing advertisers to exclude certain racial and ethnic groups. Secretary Castro and I talked about how racial justice has impacted his life, what it takes to drive change from the inside, We also spent some time talking about the role of social movements in progress. We covered a lot of ground. Secretary Castro, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Great Um, to be with you. I'd love for you to start with just how racial justice has fit into your life up until now. And this is actually something as we engage our members um, and ask them for questions, this kept bubbling up in different ways where our members really wanted to know um, how has it been a driver? How has it impacted your life and your work? Well, it's fair to say that I got into politics in part because of um, the way that I grew up. Um, and the way that I grew up was in the household of a mother who was a Chicana activist mm-hmm. who was part of the Mexican-American civil rights movement. Um, she had grown up in a time when there was still outright racism um, in law uh, and in every institution possible in the United States. And my mother was part of a generation, the civil rights generation, that pushed back on that uh, in every way that they could. And I grew up in that household um, being talked to about the differences in America in terms of who was able to accomplish what too oftentimes and how different people were treated differently. uh, And also being talked to about what we could do about it. Mm -hmm. Now, um, in my mother's generation, she had chosen to be an activist. The blessing of growing up in my generation was that more people, you know, in our generation, yes. I think, had the chance to be this kind of combination insider, outsider, uh, to actually get elected and to try and make progress from the inside. But, um, you know, for a lot of my upbringing, uh, the conversations that I would hear with my mom, with her friends, with the people that she would hang out around, centered around racial and ethnic justice. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, moving to that point of insider, uh, can you talk to me about sort of a specific systemic change that you've been a part of winning or part of working to win, you know, something that's been important to black people, something that's been important to, you know, larger communities of color. When we at Color of Change, we often say when black people win, everyone wins. Um, And and so, you know, I'd love to hear about, you know, a, a policy um, in an issue that you've worked on and sort of how you, how you did that? I think of it a couple of different things. Um, one of the things that I'm most proud of was that when I was housing secretary, we made it a priority to pass the most groundbreaking rule, implement the most groundbreaking rule since the Fair Housing Act in 1968 uh, to try and further desegregate 
our communities in the United States. We did something called affirmatively furthering fair housing. And the idea was that uh, HUD doles out a lot of resources to cities, to counties, to housing authorities, uh, but we felt like we had not held them accountable enough for creating equal housing opportunity mm -hmm. in their jurisdictions. And so this rule was saying, hey, look, if you're gonna get this federal money, then you need to be more thoughtful and more directed mm -hmm. about how you're ensuring that those resources are spent fairly and that you're creating equal housing opportunity within your bounds. Uh, I'm proud of that. I'm also proud that when I became mayor of San Antonio, uh, I pushed to make sure that we implemented more than 100 recommendations that had been made for how to improve our police department mm -hmm. when it came to treating people the same no matter what racial ethnic background they were from. Um, because for a long time, I have felt a frustration about the way that uh, especially young black men are treated differently by police. Mm -hmm. uh, so those are a couple of examples of, yeah. of things that, you know, I'm proud yeah. that I've worked on. In, in, right, in each of those situations, um, we hear the sort of conclusion, right, of what, what happened or what the policy was. I'm interested in the forces that you had to push back on the forces that had to uh, be dismantled or um, the power that had to be built in order to get there. So as you're moving policy around housing or as you're um, trying to uh, change policing, right, talk to us and talk to our members and talk to the folks listening. What had to be moved? What had to be pushed? What had to be overcome? Well, look, I mean, first, it's fair to say that I came into two situations, you know, especially at, at HUD, at the Department of Housing and Urban Development under the Obama administration, mm -hmm. where there was a lot of support within the administration mm -hmm. for what we were, we were doing, yep. thankfully, of yes. course, yeah. with Barack Obama as president. Uh, and as mayor, you know, there was, that was probably a little bit more contentious, but it was underway when I got there, these changes that we needed to make to the police department. But in other ways, what I have seen um, is that it's a battle because really what you're fighting is you're fighting the forces of status quo. And whether that means that you're trying to make improvements to a police department that oftentimes embraces the status quo, that uh, has been slow to change. Yeah. Um, a lot of times you have, for instance, these police unions yeah. uh, that any time uh, a complaint is made against an officer, much less policy changes that you want to make, there's a reflexive pushback, a fight against that or out there uh, in the housing context, when you wanna do a regulation that impacts a housing authority or uh, that expects more from cities or counties, a lot of times there, there's a pushback because they say they don't want more regulations or uh, you know, that they know, you know, communities know, local communities know how to uh, create policy best for themselves. Some of that, I think they launch toward any kind of regulation, but some of it is also grounded at times in a pushback against uh, a fight for racial justice. Um, in fact, I would say that the more you try and accomplish something that creates racial justice, the more pushback you often get. Yeah. So, you know, lots of times when progressives get into power um, and you have a very progressive platform, they feel like they have to kind of be the sort of moderate voice, have to hear all sides. I'm, I'm interested though 
in how you see yourself working with movements. How did you work with movements when you uh, pushed those policy platforms? And how do you see yourself as a progressive leader going into the presidency? And how will you work and engage movements um, and, and work with those on the outside um, to uh, make good on, on the platform that you've put forward, but also um, deal with those forces that you sort of label that are going to reflexively push back against any of the changes that we, um, we see as necessary? Oh, you know, I, uh, I think that movements have a big role to play in pushing us forward. As you know, yeah. you know, movement politics and activists are often, if they're not at the leading edge, they're not doing their job. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Right? So, and, and people in movements know that. Mm -hmm. The challenge for somebody on the inside is to take that energy and take that direction and then to translate it into politically what you can accomplish at that time. Yeah. Uh, there have been times where politically I wanted to accomplish more than I thought that we mm -hmm. could accomplish. And then there have been times where we were able to completely hit the mark of what we wanted to. I'll give you a quick example of that. In 2013, uh, when I was mayor of San Antonio, we passed a non-discrimination ordinance that was a groundbreaking non-discrimination ordinance at the time uh, to protect members of the LGBTQ community from discrimination in the city of San Antonio. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of people pushing back against that. You know, we're in the middle of Texas, yeah. of course, and it was still 2013, not 2019. Fortunately, we've seen rapid change, even though there's still uh, headwinds there. You know, we pushed forward and we were able to put that non-discrimination ordinance in place. That was taking from a lot of the energy and the leadership of, uh, of a movement and being able to translate that directly into mm -hmm. political um, policy change. So sometimes you're able to hit the mark, other times, um, you do take what you can from the direction that movements want you to go, and you get accomplished what you can get accomplished at that time. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we oftentimes talk about at Color of Change is the role of corporations and corporate power. Um, the ways in which um, corporations far too often can stand in the way of social change and very often co-opt social change movements, um, the, how they can uh, warp the incentive structures about what's possible and in many ways how um, corporations can dictate a lot of the terms of our democracy, the way that money and politics works. Um, I'm interested, you know, as it relates to racial justice across everything from the role that corporations are, are playing in the issues around immigration and detention in this country, um, to the role uh, that corporations play in the uh, rise of mass incarceration, and to, to the way that healthcare policy and so many other things are set. I am interested in, in both how you're structuring your campaign, how you will deal with the corporation, and what specific policies you're thinking about um, to deal with the um, unchecked power of corporations in our democracy and in our economy. Well, there's a lot uh, yeah. there that, that I, we need to address. Um, you know, just you think about the primary motive of mm -hmm. a corporation is to make money. Yeah. But that's not or shouldn't be the primary motive of mm -hmm. a public servant yeah. um, to make money for people or, you know, see people through the lens only of what makes money. Um, for, for me, you know, my interest is in making sure that everybody 
is treated equally, that everybody has a shot in this country to achieve their dreams, that we have a nation that works for everyone, a nation where everyone counts. Um, and so I have pointed out in this campaign where corporate interests conflict with, I believe, what's in the best interest of this country. I'd like to see us get rid of these private detention facilities mm -hmm. and private prisons, both in the immigration context and more largely in our corrections mm -hmm. uh, facilities. Uh, we're having this big battle right now uh, that I think we're going to talk about, about tech yeah. and the role that they play. Yeah. When I was at HUD, uh, we pressed on Facebook about the fact that that they allowed for the ability basically to violate the Fair Housing Act yeah. because people could choose mm -hmm. whether they advertise housing to someone who was black or someone who was white mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. Latino. Uh, in healthcare, you know, what interest does a corporation have in making sure that the maternal mortality rate between black women and white women is the same? Mm -hmm. We have to make sure that they have that interest yes. by pressing them on that, yeah. these hospitals. Yeah. Uh, so just across the board, the way that I see it from a racial justice lens is that as a policymaker, how do you put policy in place and how do you pressure yeah. corporations politically and then create a system where that natural tendency of these corporations to focus almost entirely on making money gets better in line with a more holistic concern for people and of righting the wrongs of racial injustice. Um, because if you just leave it, you know, leave them to their own devices, that's not gonna happen. Yeah, so you, you mentioned big tech and, um, and I do wanna touch on that. Um, the many folks are gonna be watching this on technology platforms that didn't e exist even during the, um, the Obama years, right? And so we, we move so quickly and the technology that has the potential to drive us into the future can pull us into the past in so many ways. And you talked about fair housing. I'm interested in um, what policies, solutions, um, and what, and as you talked about corporate power, how you believe that you're gonna build towards holding corporations, and particularly holding big tech companies accountable to um, recognizing that um, just because they're new, they don't get a different set of rules. Uh, well, and that's, uh, that's part of the growing yes. pains, I think, yeah. for them and for, and for movements and for yeah. policymakers. And that, you know, the, the example that I cited of how uh, HUD dealt with Facebook and then dealt with them again yes. under the Trump administration, mm -hmm. but not because that was, I'm sure, you know, y'all <laughs> yeah. and other people yeah. who were pushing them to do that. Um, that was a very good example mm -hmm. of that because even though they were not a traditional newspaper or TV station or radio station, they still effectively function as um, a place for advertisement for housing. And the problem was that they were allow allowing uh, somebody to choose, will my housing ad only go out to these type of people or these type of people? You know, I don't believe that Facebook executives said, uh, when it comes to housing, we're we wanna allow people to discriminate, but it is this issue that you brought up, yeah. which is a lot of times they haven't caught up with, and yeah. policymakers often haven't mm -hmm. caught up with mm -hmm. the fact that even though it's a new platform, yeah. they're fundamentally doing a lot of the same things, yep. uh, carrying out a lot of the same functions as traditional media. Um, so that's number one. I, I, we need to think deeply as policymakers 
about all of the functions that they serve and how we've applied laws to those functions to ensure um, racial justice in the past and how they can catch up yeah. in the 21st century to yeah. these platforms. Yes. Um, secondly, you know, there's been a big push for inclusivity, meaningful inclusivity. Yeah. That continues because these tech companies have been really terrible when it comes to inclusivity at the board level, at the employee level, um, in, in the investments and community that they're making. Um, in addition to that, more systematic changes, mm -hmm. uh, how we uh, analyze mergers, for instance, as these things continue in the tech industry. Uh, I would like to see us have updated 21st century uh, regulations that I think better respond to the realities of what these tech giants are. Uh, some have called for specific companies to be broken yes, up. Yes, yeah. You know, I, you know, I haven't gone that far yet, although I can see the merits of some of those arguments. I do think, though, we need to have strong standards in place that reflect technology in the 21st century. Uh, so there are a whole bunch of different things that I think we need to do to ensure that uh, these tech companies mm -hmm. actually um, better serve their mm -hmm. customers mm -hmm. and don't make worse, um, whether it's racial justice or other types of injustice. So, you, you know, you, you talked about righting wrongs, right? And, um, and we have a question from one of our members, Greg from South Carolina, who wants to know about reparations and where you, and I know that you've come out for reparations. And I'd, I'd also love to add to that sort of where do you see the role of corporations and big business that has played such a role in profiting off of uh, black servitude, has played such a role of putting so many of the policies in the uh, practices in place that have hurt communities while benefiting and making huge profits from, you know, Jim Crow to now. I'm interested in sort of how you see the, the role of um, those that have benefited so much from unfair rules, um, how we right those wrongs. They certainly have a role to play because they did benefit. Uh, so many people in the country yes. benefited off of the labor of slaves and uh, the legacy after that during the Jim Crow era and segregation and everything else. Uh, there was an unfair competitive advantage that was created for many companies and many people in this country. And um, let me just say that I believe in reparations. Um, I'm supporting uh, Sheila Jackson Lee's mm -hmm. uh, HR 40 that would create a commission that would make a recommendation on how we should pursue reparations. But I fundamentally, fundamentally believe that it makes sense. And I've said before on this campaign trail, um, I believe that for a couple of reasons. I believe that we owe a debt to the people who were held in enslavement and to their families. Mm -hmm. Not only for slavery, but for the time after that. Yeah. For families that were not allowed to advance, uh, never able to reach their dreams because of what was in our law. And then secondly, just, you know, this is the old lawyer in me. From a legal perspective, I see very clearly in the Constitution that if somebody takes your property, if the government takes your property, uh, that's a taking and you're owed compensation. Well, the government essentially sanctioned people as property. So why would they and their descendants not be owed 
yeah. because of that. Yeah. And, and that's why I believe that we should pursue mm -hmm. uh, Representative Jackson Lee's commission and come up with a way to address uh, reparations. I also believe that uh, corporations that have benefited from that over the generations uh, do have a responsibility as part of that what that is or how that would yeah. be figured out, I, I think that's part of the process. But I do see um, the point of those who argue that some of the biggest corporations in this country's history got as big as they did um, off, of the, off of the labor of slaves yeah. and the aftermath of that. And there's an injustice there that needs to be addressed. So the last question. Um, and it's a question that I'm asking each of the candidates. Um, as we look at the debates, as we just see the campaign trail, so much of the relationship of the candidates to black communities is talking about sort of the issues in our communities, what the candidates are going to sort of do for black communities. And that's important. I mean, that's part of a debate and a conversation. But I'm also interested in sort of the contributions that black people have made to politics and made to society. And so I'd love to know what has how have black people helped and black and maybe a specific black person helped shape um who you are today yeah well of course you know uh, i went into politics at an early age and um there were people along the way that did inspire me uh, from the black community uh, i think of two first of all jesse jackson in his 1984 and 1988 runs at that time in 1984 i was 10 years old in 1988 i was 14 years old and watching his groundbreaking campaigns, speaking truth to power. Uh, I remember not watching the 88, I believe it was the 88 convention, but listening to it on the radio because I was with my father and my brother at the Grand Canyon in Arizona mm -hmm. and hearing him speak and um, being inspired by him at that time. And then uh, there was a, a local gentleman by the name of Reverend Claude Black in San Antonio, who was a groundbreaking figure. Uh, he had been part of the civil rights movement, obviously was uh, a, a religious man, but also served on the San Antonio City Council at a time when it was changing and was one of the very first African-American members of the San Antonio City Council. And so as I started to get interested in local government, because that was my passion when I got into politics, you know, I was reading everything that I could about people who had served and um, you know, listening to old city council meetings and studying what had happened. And he was an inspirational figure because he was sort of this bridge between the struggle of the civil rights movement and then this thing that we just talked about of being able to actually come into power and serve. And he served on the city council for a few terms. Um, and so he was, he was also somebody that at the beginning when I was getting into politics, I thought about and inspired me. Thank you for that. I was uh, nine when Jesse Jackson ran in 88, and, um, and it was certainly uh, um, presented a possibility model, a new sense of hope and possibility. And, um, and when candidates um, show up on the national stage and break barriers um, and present new possibilities, as I'm sure you're doing for so many, um, it will have ripple effects for years to come. So thank you for joining us. Um, thank you. And, um, and good luck, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Secretary Castro, for joining us today. And thanks to all of our listeners. Before you go, text, tweet, and email this episode to your friends. 
Also, don't forget to subscribe to the Voting While Black podcast so you'll get next week's episode. Featuring author Marianne Williamson and the conversation I had with her about reparations for slavery. Voting While Black is a national voter mobilization project based in Black joy and building Black power. We will kick off hundreds of brunches and other events in 2020 to bring Black folks and our allies together to get informed about the election. Sign up and be the first to hear about the Voting While Black tour at votingwhileblack.com. Thank you to everyone who helped make this show possible, including our own Whitney Bugs, Tanika Boyd, Valerie Brown, Jennifer Edwards, Kwesi Chapin, Devorn Hermiku, Vanessa Ross, Drew Daniels, and Alexis Grishaber. Additional thanks to Ryan Sensor. This show was produced by Color of Change Pack in partnership with Shara Morris from Neon Hum Media. I'm Rashad Robinson. See you next week.